This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. I hate these guys. Well, welcome to the church, boys. We are here. We are. Well, we're not going. We are not going skiing. Billy I was spinning a record. So Billy rarely wear, very rarely wears a, a baseball cap, and I'm I'm always beheaded, and. uh so I get online for Skype here, and we're talking, and I see Billy has his head on sideways. Well, how do you yeah, that's how jaunty, do at, a, at a jaunty angle? It's quite that's youthful. How ro- that's how I roll. That's, you're very, very youthful and hip, Billy. Well, I am. I mean, I'm barely in my 30s. So we got to apologize ahead of time for a whole lot of things. One, just simply because we're us, we just apologize. We're sorry. The show is going in. We're sorry. Wait a minute. Can I just say, I want to say something that I I didn't mention to you (laughs) before, Chris, before we started uh, recording today's show. My wife messaged me. She texted me like an hour and a half ago, and she said, I just took the which first lady quiz are you? Um, And and then she sent me the result, and she was Hillary Clinton. And she just sent that, like a screenshot of it with a frowny face. Oh, that's what would so you sad. do if that happened to you? If well, your wife messaged called, you and said, di- "I'm Hillary," it's called divorce court. <laughs> divorce court. <laughs> um, I don't know why. And I'm judging, that, and judging by, and judging by, the, judging by the photo shoot that you had today, I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to fight for custody. Is that right? Well, yeah, we had we had a three year old photo shoot that I didn't go to, and and when I say photo shoot, I mean a group on at J C Penney. Um, and. <laughs> Um, which, which is really with a three-year-old, you're already testing your luck to begin with. So, but it went really well right. apparently, and I saw three of the pictures, and 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 Ava did very well. Okay, so, good. so the 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 thing we're, we're apologizing, and not just you know, like it's not it's not simply like a regular apology. Like when I wake when when we're my so wife sorry. when we're I wake so up sorry. when I wake up every morning and I roll over and look at my wife and I just look at her and say I'm sorry. <laughs> just that's <laughs> how I start my day. <laughs> Uh, it's not that kind of apology. It's we're we are uh, we have a mobile studio this week. I'm actually on the Oregon coast in Seaside, Oregon, and so I brought all my equipment with wait, me. Wait, but wait, wait, don't have all the stuff. Wait, is wait, wait, wait. Is there a place called Seaside, That's Oregon? The name, it's the name of a town. Yeah, like yeah. Seaside in New Jersey. Nothing like Seaside, in New Jersey. But it's the no, same Itali- name. you don't have Italians there. <laughs> God, I hope not. You're all, you are awful. Low crime rate. Oh, wow. I don't mean nothing about Italians. I mean, like, versus uh-huh, compared to uh-huh. New Jersey. Compared to New no, Jersey. No, please, get get us on Right Wing Watch, please. Okay. That's, that was... <laughs> no. Maybe that's the key. I'm maybe hoping somebody from People for the, the American Way is watching. <laughs> or listening, rather. <laughs> so, anyway, so the, the audio quality might not be as, <laughs> as stellar as you're used to. Because <laughs> I'm set up in the... We have this beach house. It's right here on the beach in Seaside, Oregon. I can see the ocean from where I'm sitting now as we as we talk. Every and, word that comes out of your wonderful. mouth is more one percent than the last word. <laughs> yeah, we have this beach house. Ding ding ding. We can see the beach. Ding 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 from our window. Uh, Anyways, I'm sitting here, anyway. but I have to set up on this on the on the table here in the kitchen, and 
And I wanted to go out on go out on the Lanai today and record, but it's just too noisy, too many trucks and people walking by, so they've been picked up all that. Plus, the internet connection here is not as great as it could be, and so we may have some glitchy audio. But anyway, so we apologize ahead of time again, not just simply because we're us, but also because there could be some, you know, Wait, I have a worse audio than usual. For you. Okay. Wait, stop apologizing and let me ask you this. All right. Have you seen anybody doctor-assisted suicide themselves while you've been there? <laughs> not yet. But I'm getting close. <laughs> this is even, I don't even know why I'm joking about this. It's, it's a awful. family vacation and it's, well, it's family vacation. So there could be at a doctor assisted suicide or maybe a, a father assisted suicide. <laughs> you By the time are we're done. Oh boy. Hey, I got three kids. I got one to spare, you know? Anyway, no, it's been great. We've been having a great time, but that, okay. So you discover a lot when you drive places, right? And so we had a, we had, we drove to Oregon here from Eastern Washington over here to Western Oregon. And really, and I've known this for a long time, but Oregon is just, you know, it's a crazy left-wing state, but that, that, I don't know that that enters into the kookiness. I mean, it enters into the kookiness of Oregon period. Yes. But we're in the middle of driving to drive here and Western Oregon drivers are the worst. Now, listen, I, they rank just behind Virginia drivers. I lived in Northern Virginia, DC for 12 years. And the worst drivers on the planet really are Northern Virginia, DC drivers. They are the worst. I mean, the worst, but we got out here and we're driving to the coast here and you get into Oregon and you get in down to near Portland and it's just like dealing with special ed drivers. It's that wasn't kind. You are so unchristian, but so you get in the back roads. Once you get past once you get past Port and you hit Highway 26 and you go to the 101 and people who on the West Coast, that's what, you know, the, the highway that goes up and down the Pacific Coast called the 101 because that's what it's called. And uh, so we're on <laughs> Highway 26, but it's, you know, it's, it's a two lane road. It's a highway and it's speed limit 55 or whatever. And it, you can guarantee that if you're going along that highway, you're, you're going to get stuck behind some twit who's going to go five miles an hour below the speed limit, no matter what. If it's 45, they're going 40. If it's 60, they're going 55. If it's 50, they're going 45. It doesn't matter. So you're dealing with that. But then I discovered the reason why the Oregon drivers are so horrible. And it isn't just because we because this is a nanny state. You wouldn't believe the signs that are here telling people how they ought to operate so that they don't hurt themselves. I mean, it's really, for a state that has doctor-assisted suicide, they're incredibly concerned about people's individual safety. But we're driving through Portland. We're on the east side of Portland. And there's a kid, there's a... um. We're trying to figure out why is traffic so slow? Cause it's three lanes each way getting into Portland and it's 55 miles an hour, I think. And there's a car in the middle lane of this three lane, uh, West, uh, Westbound freeway middle lane. It's a student driver with a big, you know, yellow flag on the top of big yellow bumper stickers on it going 40 in a 55 in the middle lane. Now we know why. And uh, the fact that the instructor did not tell him to pull over or anything explains everything that's wrong with the state of Oregon. These people are absolutely clueless. So, and this is why you vacation there every year. Well, it's once it's nice once you get here, and we love it here. We love the beach, and you know what they call that, nice. Chris? You huh? know what they call that? A is liberal it, lie. That is what they call that. So yesterday we actually have you seen Goonies? You know the movie Goonies. Uh, of Goonies? course, I'm okay. an American. Okay, so where we are right now is actually between the two places where Goonies was filmed. Goonies, the city that they're in, is in Astoria, which is I don't know, 20 miles north of here. And why is every wait a minute? Why huh? is everything in Oregon named after something in New York? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about that? <laughs> Astoria <laughs> Queens. So anyway, 
And then yesterday we went down to Cannon Beach, where the Haystack Rock is. So in, in, in Goonies, the city portion that happens in is in Astoria. But then when they're looking through the little map and there's the jagged rocks, they, they match up. It's Haystack Rock, which is in Cannon Beach. So we spent the day there yesterday. So if you're a Goonies fan, but you've never been to the Oregon coast, I am sitting in the middle of the Goonies movie, and <laughs> both literally and figuratively. Uh, if you've seen my family, it's like dealing with Sloth or whatever his name is. Baby Ruth! You know, that kind of deal. So Actually, you know, you're reminding me that we need to get Sean Astin on the show, who was in The Goonies, who oh, I'm right. friends with, and I think he, we need to have him on here for sure. So when he come on, I want to talk. I mean, Sean's always got, you know, Austin's got always got projects he's working on, but I like it when I get to talk to celebrities for movies that they're famous for in their past, and a lot of them don't want to talk about the stuff in the past that made them who they are, but there's some who are really good about it. Do you think he'd come on and talk about Goonies and... Oh, Rudy, totally. And I mean, and, I mean, you're, the cool thing about him is you've got somebody who has been in other, I mean, big movies. He's been in a, he's been in a number, like a small number of really huge, like the Goonies is one of those cultural right. phenomenons. And you've right. got, um, what was the other one that he was in? He was Rudy, in like another series. Lord of the Rings. Thank you. Why am I forgetting this? I kept because, you're Hobbit. Inco- because you're an incompetent boob. I wanted to call it The Hobbit, but we know that's the second series. But anyway, yeah, so he's been in a lot of these really big roles. And he was in The Strain, which I love. I don't know if anybody's watched The Strain. It's a little a little gruesome and graphic, but it's about zombies. Love yeah. it. Um, and, oh, did you watch Wayward Pines, Chris? We talked I've, about I've not story. watched that yet. You told it's me over. about that. It's over. It just ended. It was only we'll 10 episodes. To. And they're not renewing it, even though it did really well. It was hmm. so good. Hmm, anyway. Interesting. All right. Well, I'll have to check John it out. Aston was not in Wayward Pines, but we need to get him on the show. <laughs> so wait a second. Why did Wayward Pines come up? What's wrong with you? I don't. I just wanted to bring it up because I watched the last episode last night, and you it reminded watch, me a little bit of The Strain. You That's watch why. a lot of television. You know what? During the summer... I tend to watch more because my wife is home and so she's recording more. She's a teacher, so she's right. like recording. Sure. And so at night, I will for like an hour or two at night sometimes. Um, no, yeah. And it's not, it's not, I mean, you watch as much TV as you want. It wasn't supposed to be a criticism. I just was noticing that you, you are able to bring up lots of TV shows that I've, you know, I've heard of or seen commercials for but not watched. But, of course, you don't watch yeah. sports because you, you know, you weren't, you're not really an athlete and you're, you're just kind of a slob and. No, I'm, I'm an sports. athlete, and you are an athlete. Um, but Goldie, he doesn't. Goldie doesn't watch football or baseball or basketball. He sometimes he'll watch golf or watch, women's I tennis. I don't watch a lot of TV. I don't. I mean, I will watch reality things. television. Well, not you really. Guys, only only um, sex box. No, I'm kidding. I, which I'm glad is gone. By the way, that's like the one show where Americans were so repulsed that nobody watched it. It was great. <laughs> Yeah, can we a, can we transition into our weekly topic of game? Yeah, today? yeah. Let's uh, let's work on our transition here. Um, and where's my Bruce Jenner music here? Here we go. Awkward transition. Um, so the awkward transition would be into this poll that, and it's so funny because you you look at what the media has been saying right about about gay marriage, and the discussion has been very much framed around this narrative of the country moving in a direction, which is true. To a degree, the country moving in a direction being very favorable of gay marriage. Right. But the AP and GFK, and full disclosure, I used to work for GFK, um, conducted this poll What does together. GFK stand for? Um, I have no idea. I actually have no idea. I should know that, but I don't. Um, I think it's, it might be like a German company, so I don't, I don't oh, know. Oh, so we're going to trust them, huh? Oh, that sounds, well, that sounds smart. For Roper, Let's trust worked, the Germans. I worked for Roper Public Affairs and Media, which they had purchased. So I, I worked so, through them but through, for Roper. So anyway. We, so we should trust the Germans. That's fine. 
That's so fine. here's the deal. July 9th to July 13th, that's when this poll was conducted. They've done a series of these. So this is not the first one. In fact, they did one in January, one in April, um, and and then one in July. They may have done some last year. But anyway, all of that aside, what this poll found, and I found this extremely interesting, they asked people if they agreed or disagreed with the Supreme Court's gay marriage ruling. 39% approved of the ruling and 41% disagreed. Wow. They disapproved. So you're actually talking about two percentage points more. I mean, you've clearly got a, a divide in the middle, basically, on that issue. And here's the other part. When you ask people, do you want gay marriage to be legal in your state? 42% said yes. And wow. 40% said no. Hmm. So pretty even you have... Split. Right. It's pretty even. But here's the other piece I think is probably the most surprising about that. When they asked the question in January, do you want gay marriage to be legal in your state? 44% said yes. That went up to 48% in April. Okay. Right. Now that means from April to July, and there's a little bit of movement. I mean, you've got like, you've always got right. the plus or minus three percentage point, you know, movement either way, uh, the confidence interval. But that's 48% down to 42%. There's been a decrease since April, according to this, in support. This is not a narrative. I mean, this is a narrative of, a, it reminds me of like the pro-life, pro-choice, very divided, splintered, split country on this issue. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Right? And, and they, they started, they didn't like how the court handled it, apparently. Right. At least at least 41 percent of the country didn't like how the court handled it. And that could mean, by the way, I mean, there could be people in there who say we support legal rights for gay marriage, but we don't really like that. Now it's been forced on every single state. Right. 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 So you're going to have different people. But the other I just want to throw this out. The other surprising piece in light of everything we've talked about, our interviews with the Kleins and their and their sweet cakes by Melissa Bakery, 59 percent now support allowing wedding related businesses um, who have religious conflict or religious objections to refuse marriage services to couples. Wow. That is up. That's almost 60%. That is up from 52% in April. So good. you've got an increase on the religious freedom front of Americans saying, we actually support those exemptions. And that actually carried through. I'm trying to find right now because I thought this was really interesting too. I don't have the exact, oh, I do have the exact numbers in front of me. 47% believe that people should be um, mandated, you know, public officials to give marriage licenses, right. but 48% want an exemption for public officials. Well, that was in, in April, it said 48%. Now it's 49%, according to what you wrote Thank up you. here. Thank you. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm I'm looking at this weirdly. Who, who, wrote yes. this, who wrote this piece? Was that, was that you who wrote that piece? It, w it would be, yes. <laughs> okay. Just but you know, checking. please, when you work for The Blaze, and I'm sure other outlets, at the end of the day, you can't remember what you wrote that day. Oh, I mean, it's no, like absolutely. one of those things, what did you write today? I have no idea exactly. what I wrote, and I don't even remember my name. Right. I know. I get it. I get it. So we um, let's take a break here, and then we'll come back. And I want to get into your, unless you want to talk more about this gay marriage stuff, because I think it's incredibly... No, I'm over it. I'm done. Incredibly I, I'm over. encouraging and interesting that the changes, the, the up and down on this debate is amazing to me. It's like our friendship and our show. Exactly. Down. So I want to come back from this break and and let's get right into um, Billy Hallowell's outrage of the week. Did that come through? OK, it did. That was my new bumper that I created for you. You believe me? Uh, no, that was not. <laughs> I but... spent seconds on it. So we'll get into your outrage of the week and um, and much more uh, right after this. Well, that's assuming that I can find the right button because you sound so incredibly prepared. <laughs> Incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> right after this. I 
back to the church boys. And now it's time for Billy Hallowell's Outrage of the Week. Billy, is it is it time for that? Uh, yes. Okay, we can, we can go ahead and quit now. That's fine. Here's here's the thing, and, and I mean, I my outrage, and it's not just of the week. This is probably the outrage that I have most in life. Like if somebody said to you, "What's the thing that makes you the most angry, the most worked up, the most disgusted, the most appalled, the most depressed, and the most sad?" I would say that it's probably the people who do not speak out against, not just the people who defend, because that's just vile, but the people who don't speak out against abortions after five months, late-term abortion, right? right. Um, and I think, you know, for me, this whole Planned Parenthood debate, I don't understand why activist groups, you know, you, you have this footage that you've taken, right? And you put the footage out there, and we now have two Planned Parenthood videos that were undercover that were captured at a time during which two different doctors allegedly believed they were talking to tissue buyers, right? These activists pose as tissue buyers. Right. And what we've seen in those videos, to me, there's the claim of, oh, they're, they're selling tissue. Planned Parenthood is selling tissue. And that's what everybody's so hung up on. My outrage is not that. My outrage is that there are discussions. And in fact, the second video, in fairness, is not talking about late-term abortion because they don't really do many, I mean, they don't do a lot of late-term abortions, the doctor who's shown in that video. But, but this notion that we're not appalled by the fact that babies are murdered and killed uh, when they're almost fully formed, if not fully formed, and there are people in this country having abortions all the way up to the eighth month, the ninth month. It, this should be, I don't care if it's one woman, 10 women, 500,000 women. I mean, I think I looked at numbers and don't quote me. It might be like 10,000 abortions a year are late term. doesn't matter. It's late term. It's disgusting. And really, we put Gosnell in jail, did we not, for snip, right. snipping the spines of babies after they were born? Right. Why? Why is there a big difference between what abortion doctors are doing to babies in the womb and what he was doing out of it? If they, don't, if they didn't feel pain in it, in the womb, allegedly— were they feeling pain out of the womb? Well, so there isn't a I mean, I'm, I don't know. I just it, it's outrageous to me. That's well, my rant. It's so completely this, so. You're claiming that this this woman that they're talking to with Planned Parenthood does they don't do late term abortions because how they, do they get the how do they get the tissue if it's not from a late term abortion? So they do the majority of the. I think she said they only do like sixty or something a year. I forget the exact number in the video, but well, that's all. Most of their abortions are, and they do many more abortions than that. The vast majority of them are um, much earlier in the pregnancy. Apparently, the tissue is still usable um, early on. But I think that also points to, and I don't know the development of, you know, I don't know a lot about field development, but but early development. I mean, you've had three kids. You've seen at three months, when your wife is three months pregnant, you go and you look, you can see a hand, you can see feet, you can see the parts of the baby developing. And, and that's what doctors monitor. So, um, you know, I think that there is still use for that tissue. Um, regardless, and but they have that discussion in the second clip about the frequency of the late-term abortions and how that was a concern. There really aren't a lot of them um, for them to get certain types of tissue that they might want. Right. Um, but with this second video, I think I think we do have to be fair too. And when I talk about the focus these videos have had on whether or not organs are being sold, that is obviously an issue that needs to be looked at. But I think the first video was edited a little bit in a way where it cut out some of the context of the donation, which is what they were talking about. It is legal to donate, right. as disgusting as all of this conversation is, it is legal to donate that tissue. I think the irony that adds to my outrage 
is these babies aren't worthwhile enough to be carried to term, right? Um, because they're not really babies. We're going to call them specimens, right. which right. is the wording that's used. We're going to call them whatever else. But you know what? They're worthwhile enough for us to take their organs and use them for research. I mean, how how bizarre and ironic is that in this discussion? Well, it's evil. It's just, but they're evil. I mean, it's, how is it not like Mengele? How is what they're doing not not what the Nazis did? Listen, I think I think that there is a case to be made. I believe taking life is completely completely always utterly disgusting and wrong when it comes to abortion. I think when we talk about late term abortion, though, what appalls me is that we even have the discussion. You can debate about a month, two months, all of that if you want. You can have that debate about what it feels like and what it means to the baby. I still think it's wrong. But how are you even entertaining the same discussion at six months? How is that? When somebody is six months pregnant, how is this a a debate that we're having? I don't – people should be outraged by this. Everybody, liberal, conservative, it's it's pure evil. And look, I understand that there are examples and issues that are extremely rare of of health of the baby. I mean I was reading one story about a woman who the baby's um, kidneys hadn't developed at all. And and she was like eight months pregnant and and the baby was basically not going to survive at all. We can have those discussions, but I think that most people would look at the issue and they would say, look, not every single person who's having those late-term abortions, they're not all having them for those reasons. So let's be honest about right. this and, and protect the, un, the unborn. I mean, I just I don't get why this is controversial. Well, and, you know, and even, even, the, even the understanding of, of there being babies in the womb who, who are not fully developed or you know, the, their kidneys didn't fully develop or their heart or whatever, I'd still would, I'd still would argue against the... I would still argue against the abortion of those babies, the aborting of those babies, because I've had family members. And I won't get into detail because I haven't asked them if it's okay to talk about it here, but they, they had a website and everything and their baby, uh, wasn't supposed to survive more than a couple minutes outside the womb. And she lived for 11 days. And in those 11 days, more people came to know Christ and, and the love of God through her and her family than most people share with the entire world over the span of their life. I mean, in, in 80, 90 years, uh, most people won't reach more people for God than this little girl did for 11 days, the way that her, the way that she and her family lived their lives. Um, I, I just don't think that I, I don't understand how a killing, if the baby's going to wind up dead, why kill it ahead of time, right? The odds of it dying when you, if you abort the baby are 100%, the odds of the baby dying after birth or maybe 99.9%. Wouldn't you rather play those odds? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think there have been studies on this, right? I mean, and, and I think this is a whole other issue. And I do agree with you. I think, look, there's always a, there, there is purpose that comes from anything that happens in life. And that not, that is not to say that God makes bad things happen, but when they do, I think that those things are used for, there is some good that can come out of those things. And, you know, and I also know stories of people who who have been told, you know, your son is going to be mentally retarded. Your son is not going to be coherent, and their kids have been born fine. Right. But but all of that aside, you know, there have been studies who have been that have been done on this, and and so at least one of those studies allegedly found that you know some of the reasons why women have abortions in their first trimester aren't that different from the reason they have abortions in their in the third trimester. Right. And th- to me. It's just too late at that point. And right. I know that by saying that, it's just, it, it's too late to be having an abortion at six, seven months. I mean, I just, it, it really gets me. And I think sitting in that Gosnell 
courtroom for the times that I did made me even more um, resolute on that and, mm-hmm. and just seeing what I what I saw and, and hearing the defense, which, you know, the defense talked about how brute- how brutal abortions are. But this Ugh. particular video, this second video, the thing that got everybody and I, and, you know, we can play it. I'll just briefly describe it. But this joke that the doctor made in the clip about wanting a Lamborghini, it really upset a lot of people. Um, and if you want, you can just play it and we can talk about it. OK, here we go. 50 versus if we can get liver, thymus, okay. brain hemisphere, and all that, then, no. and then so that, that protects us so that we're not paying for what we can't use. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, it also, I think it also okay. maybe illustrates things. It's for, been years since I've talked about compensation, so let me just uh-huh. figure out what others are getting at. If this is in the ballpark, and that's fine. If it's mm-hmm. low, still low, then we can talk about it. I want a Lamborghini. <laughs> I said I want a Lamborghini. <laughs> Don't we all, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, that was the end of the video. Sorry. Well, I think, you know, look, and I'm not going to, and I don't want to come across as defending because, I mean, look, this is disgusting. The reason everybody's responding to all of these, to these two videos is because the discussion itself is vile and it's forcing yeah. us to think about what abortion is. Well, yeah. Right. And well, and it's, it's the callousness. It's if, if I told you, if I told you that you could go uh, to, if uh, I've discovered a, a, a stash of, of bodies that have been buried at Nuremberg or not Nuremberg or at, um, at the, at the, uh, concentration camps. If I told you that I found a stash of bodies, you could dig through there and find gold fillings and just, uh, you know, name your price to be able to go dig through there. Wouldn't you say that's a little bit callous of me? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I, 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 think... I want a Lamborghini. You can get a Lamborghini. I, I can jokingly say, I mean, of course she doesn't want a Lamborghini. She's, she's making a joke period about, you know, I want to get as much money as I can for these dead babies. Like that's what she's saying. Now, now I think, in this video, what is interesting to me is, <sighs> oh, sorry, did, I, did we wake you? Tired me out. Yeah, you just winded me. Um, I was yawning. But what what this discussion, I think, you know, does in this video is shows how really desensitized these people are. Yeah. But in fairness to the doctor, she yep. said numerous times, "We're not in this for the money." I need to go back. I need to ask other clinics what they're charging for the expenses. But what was weird to me is it seemed, and I didn't watch the full clip. I have, I've only looked at the edited version. That was all that was out when I did the story on this. It really seemed like this particular doctor was, you know, sort of saying, well, we have we have overhead expenses. There's a cost to keep our doors open. And that's what, what the reimbursement would be for, right? right? I was under the impression that it was only okay and only legal if the reimbursement was for the travel expenses and the other associated costs yeah. of moving the the unborn babies that had been aborted from one place to another. I, so that was weird to me. And they start having this discussion about the different amounts of money. You know, She throws out a figure and then the actors say, oh no, you should ask for 100 per specimen. So if that's changing, right, if that number's changing, right. then it seems like they could be making money off of it. But in fairness, again, Dr. Mary Gatter, who's the doctor in this clip, was very careful about saying, I need to see what other people are doing before I make any agreement on what this money would be. And she did say they're not in it for the money. Well, so well, they're I think not in have it, to say but, that. But are they, but is the, is, she says they're not in it for the money from an ethical standpoint, or we're not in it for the money in that we've never, that's never been a, a source of revenue we've pursued. So. It seemed to be more um, well, actually, I have to say, I think, and and I'm going to sound like a crazy liberal defending her. 
I I think it was somewhat of, of the ethical piece of it. Um, she she was saying we're just we're not interested in the money for this. I mean that, and she said it like three times during that clip, and they kept it in. They showed it, but she also brought up the concern of the type of procedure that would need to be done for the few cases that were later term. That she said altering the procedure, not even for the late term, you know, for any of them to to keep basically to keep the unborn baby intact so it could be used. She said there were some concerns with altering that procedure and that she would need to go back and talk with the surgeon at this particular clinic to make sure that yeah. they could do that because they're really not supposed to. And, you know, she said there are other procedures that are OK. You know, so she was she was cautious. I mean, I have to but, say the first doctor yet, no, was not. But yet willing still to look into it. Right. Just because willing she's, to look into it. Willing be, to look into it. But but just because you know, she's smart, just because she's smarter than, you know, Dr. Nutella or whatever her name was. <laughs> doesn't doesn't mean that she's ethical. It just means no. That she's well, more I think cautious. for people people like you and I, we don't think. I mean, I don't think anybody any of us would look at abortion as ethical to begin with. But right. we don't know, and and I have to be fair. Like we don't know what they said to her. They could have been selling this as these are really going to help people. This is going to be research. Da, 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 that's going to help people. You know, would you look into it so that we can see if we can do this important work? I don't know if that it doesn't make it right, but I don't right. know if that's how this was prefaced. We don't we don't know because. But it doesn't. It doesn't the whole video. But I mean, to me, it doesn't matter how it was prefaced as far as what the usage would be. It's still the harvesting of babies. Look, I agree with you, but it's no, you legal. You obviously, love, you obviously love abortion and hate the Lord, so that's fine. <laughs> I mean, the problem is that that is legal, right? The harvesting yeah. is legal as long as there's no money exchanged for it. Right. And I think that is part of the the issue here. And I guess my confusion is, look, there are going to be people who say, well, these people are aborting and you know they're aborting anyway and so why not use it for research and you're going to have people who say that's absolutely vile and disgusting and it's wrong there was one important point and the, his name is slipping my mind but an ethicist who i interviewed a few weeks ago about okay. this um was saying hey you know part of the problem with this is what if the clinic sells it to a woman who's having an abortion as oh no you're also doing a really good thing you can donate your tissue and it, it's almost a factor that helps push people over the edge right right, right. like oh you're doing a good thing that'll it'll make you feel better about it and i think that ethically is very problematic absolutely all right well we finished your outrage of the week we're gonna let's get into the interview here let's take a break and we'll get into a very special interview that that billy had um i wasn't able to be on because i'm stuck here with my idiot family on the Oregon coast. <laughs> yeah, you're st you're stuck looking out your window at the beautiful palm trees in the beach, yeah. But B Billy had a very interesting interview with a well, with a man that we've had some disagreement with before um and uh so let's we'll take a we're going to take a break and we'll come right back and we'll get into that in just a minute. Back to the church boys and there's awkward silence that, good, that was Dylan. that was your that was your cue no, it by was. The way. i just wanted to make an awkward moment and i wanted to see what you would do <laughs> and i can't see you can, can, so. he, can he not hear the the audio it's i was trying well. to like whisper into it it just didn't it's hard it's really hard to follow up satan it really is during those breaks but i had a great interview and it was unfortunate chris was you know perusing uh Oregon, like a weirdo all week and didn't get a chance to get on this interview with me. But I talked for a really long time with Rob Bell, uh, the former pastor of Mars Hill. Uh, and, you know, 
this was one of those interviews where I needed Chris because there wasn't enough anger and vitriol in the interview. I was very kind, and I always need Chris to step in and be like, hey. You need someone that's a little, a little more dick- dickish. <laughs> right. There you go. So, but no, it was. listen, it, I know a lot of evangelicals don't like Rob Bell, have have issue, serious issues with what he's theologically stood for ding, and ding, said ding, over the right years. Ding, ding, right here. Ding, 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 ding. Right here. Right. Well, I think the whole denying hell thing and all that is clearly problematic. But, you know, he's not really a pastor anymore. What he's doing now is completely different. He's out in L.A. He's working with Oprah. He's on a tour oh, right now. In fact, he's in New York City on Friday night, which is the day we're recording this tonight. And he invited me to be one of his guests at some event, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to go. But he, you know, we we talked about a wide range of topics and how he's changed, what he believes about hell and heaven and God. We talked about his endorsement of gay marriage. Um, and I left the interview thinking, you know, look, he's a really nice guy. It was it was a very difficult interview. And so I want everybody to just hear me out on that. Uh, it was a good discussion, but a tough interview because he's one of those people who speaks very philosophically and sort of dances around the directness of a question, right? Right. right. And um, but I'll just I will. So, so I got I got to ask I got to ask you as we tease into this because I haven't listened to the the interview yet. Did you bring up the Francis Chan angle? You know, I didn't. We didn't get okay. there, but we're going to have him back. That was okay. I actually made him promise to come back, so you'll right. hear that. And uh, you know, to to promise to come back and and join us, and I think you should be a part of that conversation. And also. One of the cool things, I'll just throw this out there now for people listening, um, we can do this soon, and you guys could send us questions, oh, yeah. Facebook us, tweet us, um, and we can include those questions for you. Yeah, him. tweet us, tweet us um, at the Church Boys, uh, all one word, obviously, and you can go, to, you can find us at the Facebook.com slash the Church Boys too, or there. So yeah, send us your questions. We'd love to hear things. Pedro, you're limited to four questions. <laughs> oh, I promised Pedro we'd have him on the show, by the way. I think we should. He's kind of taken to moderating the Facebook page, which is fantastic. It's less work I love for it. us. <laughs> I love it. And Pedro. You know what his it is? Wife, his well, wife you... posted a message, and she's like, they just want to have you on to make fun of you. And I was like, not at all. We <laughs> no, are having him on it's... to help me make fun yes, of Chris. Not, a, not at all. That would <laughs> never be why we would have him on. Hey, uh, by the way, I think I know why he's doing this now. He's taking this extra step of moderating the page and stuff. You know why? Because well, there's, there's another guy challenging him for best fan. Did you see Ooh, that? No, guy named who's Chad, the other one? I think his name's, on, his name's Chad on Twitter. And he's talking about how he's loving the show. And he and I were tweeting. It was on the, it's on the Church Boys feed and my feed, too. And I think I copied you on it anyway. So I think Pedro stepping up his game, which is fine. Well, I have to say, you know, before we go into the interview, I love, I think that people are really reacting well to the show and I love the interaction and just like, we want you guys to be a part of the show. So send us things. If you see a story, you think something's interesting, you want us to like laugh about it, talk about it, be serious about it. Yeah. Um, if you want to tell us Absolutely. if your wife is Hillary Clinton when she takes the, uh, which first lady am I quiz, <laughs> let us know who she is. Or, let us- or, or if your <laughs> wife listens to the show. <laughs> We're joking about the show yes, uh, this morning or last night, because uh, my sister Ronnie obviously here is here, and she's she would like to be number one fan, but there's a there's a rule on allowing family members to be considered number one, so she'll never get it. Uh, but she was joking with my wife here. This it was this morning because I'm setting up the audio stuff, and they're talking about I'm just shaking their heads like, can't you just take a break? And I was like, we're trying to build an audience here. We can't just take a break from doing this. Of course, Billy, what's happening next week when you're going to probably just take a break because you're you. <laughs> Anyway, no, I'm not. No, we're doing. Okay. Look, we're gonna try to do oh, this. However, oh, oh, we have to do it. You have to take a mic into the delivery room. 
Oh, please. You know I'm going to have a secret cam. I'm going to, yes. much like the Planned Parenthood videos, I'm going to record secretly oh, what goes on. must be done. So, uh, anyway, so they're laughing. And JC's just <laughs> shaking her head. And my sister's defending, for once in my life, my sister is defending her, defending me to my wife. My Everybody in my family loves my wife more than me, which comes as a shock to no one. But my sister is actually defending this show. Not defending me. I should take that back. She's not defending me. She's defending the show. You know, she says, it's actually a really good show. They do a good job on it. And JC just shakes her head. And I said, she's not allowed to listen. How are we going to have the running joke that our wives don't listen if she listens? And my wife <laughs> says, that's fine. I don't want to. I hear enough of it through the walls anyway. <laughs> she can hear me recording. Yeah, my wife hears it too. And my kid always tries to escape down to the office because she can hear me recording. Um, so they, they've secretly heard it. Yeah, Actually, my... my wife, I caught my wife listening to Uh-oh. the segment about the dishes oh, yeah. the, and, and right. pregnant women, and she was laughing. Right. Okay. Well, she just listened to a little clip, though, one of the little Just the clip. Okay. She's never done the whole episode. Okay, good. Well, all right. All right. What were we doing? Oh, we're getting into an interview. So uh, Rob Bell, Rob we're... Bell, Rob Ding Dong Bell. And go. (laughs) In action. (laughs) All right, here you go. It's Billy Hollowell here, and I've got a special guest on the show today. It is Rob Bell. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great, thanks. Well, it's good. It's good to finally connect. You've been on my list of people who I've really wanted to to talk with for a long time, so I appreciate you taking the time. Fantastic. What an honor to be on your list. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, but it's good. No, we're we're glad to have you. And well, let's. I guess let's start by talking about your everything is spiritual tour, which um, I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about. So just to sort of dive in on that, what what can the audience expect to get from this? It's it's basically a one man show, right? Yeah, it's basically a two hour one man show, and it's me and I have. <laughs> coolest whiteboard you've ever seen. And, uh, <laughs> what I'm really interested in is scientists are now telling us that our universe is expanding, that it's been expanding for 13 billion years. And what I find fascinating about this is that our moments of love and peace and joy and connection, those moments when our hearts feel most full and alive, are moments when we expand, when we embrace, when we include, when we reach out, when we move beyond ourselves to connect with other people around us. And so it's fascinating to me that scientists are telling us the universe is a certain way, but we kind of already know that because that's how our hearts work. So it's almost like there's a science of the soul and sort of making a series of connections and looking for the poetry of it all and making some very sort of practical, so maybe this is what it means to live this out every day and it's just so much fun to be in a different city each day and to see people react and I get to meet all these fascinating human beings. Yeah, it's just been great. How many now how many tour dates do you have set up? Oh, I think this run is like uh, thirty one in a row. Wow. So like five weeks. Wow, that's so. I mean, that's but that's like crazy. And you have obviously you have a family and kids. It's got to be that always has to be hard. I wonder. I've never had to travel like that um, to to balance it all. So you're going to hit 31 different stops in just about five weeks. That's nuts. Yeah. Wow. All right. The whole family. The whole family. Everybody has their own bunk. Like we're all together. See, that's cool. That's like a family vacation. Yeah, exactly. It's like a a massive family vacation. I I love it. Um. Well. Yeah. So, and I think it's interesting because you're talking science and and spirituality, and I think, you know, in in evangelical circles and and a lot of faith circles, science and religion, 
you know, for many people go hand in hand, but there's always debate, right? There's always discussion and debate. Um, How long have you been interested in sort of the science end of things? Is this a more recent um, thing for you or is this something that's sort of always been an area of interest? Um, I would, well, the first tour I ever did was in 2006. Um, So it was probably a, probably 10 or 15 years ago that I sort of stumbled into what people were saying about quantum physics, and I just found it all so fascinating. I just never found, I always found science to be fascinating. I always found discoveries to be just, 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 just always just with wonder and awe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you read the really great scientists, they're like, oh my word, this stuff was blowing our mind, and it's raising all sorts of new questions, which to me, they sounded a lot like the poets and the mystics at that point, um, just working perhaps in different mediums. And I, I, for me, at the heart of any faith, would always have to be a welcoming of whatever new facts were discovered. That if in any way science threatens your faith, then you probably need to get a better faith. <laughs> well, I mean, I think a lot of people... Well, you know, I think a lot of people see see science as as it should be able to validate faith and vice versa, right? And that's sort of you know you can get into these you get in the debates about evolution, creationism, all these other other things, but but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a, always an interesting discussion because really the two should go hand in hand for for people who people Absolutely. of faith. Absolutely. So and sometimes you need a scientist, sometimes you need a scientist, and sometimes you need a poet. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a more fully orb discussion in which everybody is listening to everybody else is just always going to be more interesting. So let me ask you. Let me ask you a really loaded question, and I'm sure it's sort of it's one of those questions where you you're going to be like, okay, well, where do I go with this? Well, maybe not. I shouldn't. Let me not lead there it. But no, there are no loaded questions. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So when you when you think back to your life, you know, as pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan, and then you sort of think through where you are now and the journey you're on now, what would you say has changed about who you are, how you view things, how you look at the world? Uh, I am more, well, you just keep growing and evolving and learning. Um, so I am, to be honest with you, I'm having more fun than ever. I'm more aware of how it can all fall apart tomorrow that this whole thing is really fragile and that this day and the conversation that we're having in the next moment are incredibly sacred and precious and holy and valuable and that the present moment in each of us waking up to being fully alert and awake in this moment really is the invitation for all of us and that I spent years working incredibly hard trying to build things and pushing. And like a lot of people, I, I'm a good American, so I was taught to be successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Work, 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 achieve, 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 push. Whatever you do, it's like Jim Carrey in the front seat of the van and Dumb and Dumber. Just keep running. You know what I mean? Just run, <laughs> run, 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 push, push, swing those arms. And that there's a joy and a depth to this moment that is, that's really where the life is. And for so many, we we were taught to run fast, and we ran fast, and we didn't ask better questions like, what kind of life do I actually want to have? Like, what does matter? 
what is a rhythm or pace of life that is sustainable. Um, so I'm, I'm truly having such a great time, and I just keep making things. And I go, like traveling like this and meeting people and hearing their stories, is, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, and, when, and when it comes to theology and and you know Jesus yeah. Jesus in Christianity in particular and and sort of yeah. Where, yeah. how has how has that changed maybe in your view if at all since um, your preaching days I at Marsa Definitely uh, I'm as orthodox as they come. <laughs> oh, <that's> <laughs> um, I believe when I was a kid I heard the Jesus stories and I found them utterly riveting. I love the idea that he answered questions by asking more questions as if he was always saying you have to own this you have to wrestle with it you have to think through how you're going to handle this and i love that whenever there was a system that had made clean lines between who's in who's out who's clean who's unclean who's with god who's against god he always subverts that system and says no actually the people who are out they're in and the ones who think they're in they're the ones who are actually in danger. I mean, he subverts whatever system he comes in contact with. Whenever something's being kicked to these touches, oh, he listens. The people who no one's listening to, he listens. The people no one who touch, he touches. I always have found Jesus utterly riveting, and I, I, I believe. So at the heart of it, I think there's something happening in the world. I think there's a, a whole new world bursting forth right here in the middle of this one, and we can all be a part of it. So... I believe more than ever. I also am deeply convicted more than ever that there is something involving everybody and that a giant universal embrace of inclusion and love really is at the heart of it all. So I'm more deeply rooted and more aware of the divine presence in all people, all backgrounds, all moments. It's the whole thing has just gotten way more bigger than interest, and more bigger, more mysterious, and more interesting over the past few years. Well, and I think obviously the whole love wins controversy. I mean, there, all of this is is complicated, right? Because there are Christians, and I think any Christian could admit this, who have really handled a lot of issues maybe improperly by saying things that really didn't come across in the most Christian way. We could talk about sexuality. We could talk about a lot of different issues, even salvation, you know, walking up to somebody and saying, you know, oh, you're going to go to hell if dot, 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 right. is not always... Who in the world knows that? That's right. Crazy. Who knows that? Well, let, so let me, but let me ask, so if somebody says in a loving way, um, you know, you you it's important to accept Jesus into your heart to inherit salvation and go to heaven. How do you respond to that? Which is a pretty common evangelical, you know, discussion point. Do they know the person? Do they have a relationship with the person? Do they care about the person? Have they walked with this person through this person's suffering, through their doubts, through their questions, through all the struggles and trials of life? The idea that there's some magic bullet you know what I mean? And it exists in an aluminum tube or something, and you just go around throwing it at people or convincing them to take it. I just believe that at the heart of the Christian tradition is this idea of incarnation, the divine and the human in the same place, and that you are growing in your awareness of the divine presence in all people in all places and all things, and you walk with people and you love them, you try and be a good neighbor, I think a bit more humility and a bit more joining people in their story and actually knowing who you're talking 
to is much better than pamphlets shoved in faces and sort of accosting people with some announcement when you don't know a thing about them. Yeah, it's like when you're walking through, I mean, I live in I live in New York City, so it's like when you're walking through the city and you have somebody on the corner screaming, screaming the gospel out, right? And, you know, as a Christian, for me, I'm usually if it's being done in that way, especially on the subway, I'm just sort of like rolling my eyes and thinking, okay, I, I don't want to deal with this at 7.30 a.m. while I'm trying to drink my Dunkin' Donuts coffee and get to work, uh, you know, right. but... Um, well, but it's interesting, was it Assisi who said, preach the gospel always and sometimes use words? So... For thousands of years, the people have understood the gospel as a path, as a, as a way of life in the world, as a way of relating to other human beings, as a way of making a whole better world, an announcement that we are loved exactly as we are. So when, when the gospel becomes words hurtled at somebody through a megaphone in a subway station at 7.30 in the morning in New York, you know what I mean? Yeah. It becomes so deeply... When it becomes disembodied and just words, the idea behind the fundamental gospel movement is the word takes on flesh. And so it's going the wrong direction, not the right movement in the world. I mean, and, and you know, and I do think that most Christians, the vast majority of them, do sort of do what you, you outline, you know, journeying, loving your neighbor and all of that. And then and then but also holding on to that view of you need Jesus to inherit salvation. How, you know, can you get to heaven in your view without Jesus, without a faith in Jesus? Well, what's interesting is what the New Testament writers kept saying is like one of them just writes, he holds all things together. So they spoke of a Christ, a universal Christ, a Christ consciousness that holds all people together, that all people are already present in. So are there people who have never heard of Jesus? Of course there are. And the idea that somehow people will burn forever in hell because they haven't believed in a Jesus they've never heard of, at the heart of the Jesus message is a trust that there is a universal grace and love greater than any one tradition. So when somebody says you have to, and then when you look at the Christian tradition and how Christians have never exactly agreed on how you get in, you know what I mean? or what you have to do, or what you have to say. You have to leave way more room for the mystery of God's love. And what if, and I think that's an interesting point too, the people who have never heard, and we know, I mean, right now in this world, there are people who are cut off and have never heard of Jesus. What about people who have repeatedly rejected? Let's say you die and you've had 30 times or 40 times in your life to accept right, Christ. Right, right. What about those people? Well, it's just such an interesting thing to talk about a God of love who then does God just give up on people? Does God, like, you know what, you had nine chances, I'm done with you. Um, does God get what God wants? Uh, in the early church, it was commonly believed when they speculated about the afterlife that however long it took for God's love to win somebody over, then that's just how long it would take, that God was patient, and that God gets what, God just wears people down. So, so, Different people have asked these questions in different ways, but the idea that, hey, you only get a few choices and then it's over, man, and forever you're going to burn, um, it just seems to go against the fundamental movement of God's love in the world. 
I think I would also add to every discussion about the afterlife that we are speculating. No one knows. And when people build whole denominations and traditions out of certainty of what happens when you die, that's just not smart. Well, I think, and that's, you make an interesting point about the afterlife. And I think a lot of this, you know, you talk about stories like heaven is for real and all these other, you know, a lot of this is, and some people obviously don't believe that those stories are true, but, you know, the heaven tourism. But yeah. at the end of the day, nobody really does heaven know. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, nobody. All no- of this, all of this is speculating. And what's so fascinating to me is when people are like, no, what happens? And the number of interviews I've done, people are like, no, seriously, what happens? Like, how does it work? What does God do? It's like, wait, 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 wait. We are talking, we are speculating. So I'll be happy to speculate. You know what I mean? Let's imagine and speculate. But no one knows. Now, I do. And that becomes like written stone. I do think you know the majority of Christians walk away with a belief in hell based on their interpretation of the Bible. I mean, you and you've got the conversation with, which I'd love to get your views on with Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again and and all of that in John three. And you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about this notion of being with God. You know, but but and I don't and I wanted to just give you a chance. I know again another loaded question to just sort of summarize, and I think you started to do that. Where you stand on this notion of hell, um, just in case people aren't aware of the past, you know, discussion about that and controversy. Well, uh, in the entire Old Testament, if you look at just the Bible, you have the word shale, you have sort of an early version of the word haze. Otherwise, there is no sort of defined convictions about the afterlife. For the, for the in Hebrew spirituality, you die, and we don't really know what happens. If you go to the New Testament, the word hell occurs, luckily, what, 16 times, 13 times? One of the words that's used is haze, which is a Greek word that just meant sort of a vague afterlife-ish, but no one really knows. The other word that's used was Gehenna. It's the word Jesus used. Gehenna means valley of Hinnom, which was the south city wall of the city of Jerusalem in the first century. It was the town dump where people burned their garbage. So when Jesus used the word hell, he was using a word that referred to a specific geographical location in first century Jerusalem. So when people build large theologies about a bunch of people going somewhere and they use the word hell, where did they get that? Because you only have a few mentions in the Bible, one of the few mentions they're mentions of a literal place that Jesus used to talk about the very reality of hell on earth. That when we exploit others, when we abuse others, when we destroy the human dignity that each person possesses, we're creating hells on earth. So what I find fascinating is the people who talk most about hell when you die seem to talk the least about the very hells on earth right now. And we have hells on earth. We have urban schools that are falling apart. Mm-hmm. We have people starving. We have rampant abuse of the environment. We have literally millions of people struggling with suicidal thoughts. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I believe we are here and we have the power to act on behalf of the screen of others. And the poor and the disenfranchised and the marginalized and those who have been kicked the edges and those who are lonely and those who are in prison, no one's busy. We can actually act in ways to bring heaven to earth and to alleviate the hellish suffering that's all around us. So that just to me seems a much more healthy way of understanding we can create hell or we can create a sort of heaven 
right here, right now. And speculation about when you die seems to be the last thing that Jesus came to teach his followers how to do. He came to teach them how to live right now in an abiding love and trust, using whatever you have, energy, time, skill, talent, passion, money, resources, to actually help some people. And it just seems like a much more compelling vision for what we're doing here and what life should look like. And it, that, for, uh, that, no, that was a great, <laughs> that was a great summary for another loaded question. We know, you know, and this people say, by the way, going back and people say, do you believe in hell? Yes. Have you ever sat with somebody who's thinking about killing themselves? You ever sat with a family whose kid was just killed by a drunk driver? There are hells on earth all around us all the time. So this idea that somehow hell is, what word do you use? for the unbelievable anguish we can create for each other and for ourselves. What a fantastic word. Well, that's why people will say, you know, it's hell on earth. It's, it's that expression, you know, going Absolutely. through hell on earth. Um, Absolutely. Would you be, I mean, in the spirit of not of not speculating, would you ever be open to the possibility that there could be, if you don't want to call it hell, but a place where people are when they have not reached heaven, if that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And think about right now, somebody wrongs you and you know you need to forgive them but you aren't doing it and you aren't taking steps to forgive them and so the hatred and anger you have towards them is consuming you and you know that there is a path however long it takes and however hard it is towards actually forgiving them and being free from the anger hurt pain and resentment but you keep choosing to hold on to it you are in many ways choosing hell you're choosing, you're choosing loneliness, anger. So could you just keep choosing hell? Could you just keep choosing to be violent, to be nasty, to be mean, to be angry, to be exploited, to be abusive? Yeah, sure. I assume you could keep choosing. Yeah. And could you keep choosing after you die? You can choose now. It seems like you'd be able to choose. But the very nature of love is, it, is its freedom. You can love the person or you can't. So... Are, is it possible that you could just, when you die, just keep choosing to be hard-hearted, to be mean, to be nasty, to be vindictive? Sure. I, I would assume that, that that option is there. And maybe that just extends on and on and on. And where would you – because I think this is the you – know, and this is like so in the weeds at this point. But like where are you then, right? Because the absence of being with God, right? That's the question. I mean, like where are you? The it's the And I, here's the thing. I think you end up – when you talk about hell, you have a lot of people who discuss it as this very physical place where you're burning, which is – I know obviously you're familiar with that description. I am as well. And then there's those – who will talk about hell and all those descriptors as more, this is what the absence of God is like. You may not actually be burning, but you're. The, the, it's so painful not to be with God that it's hell, that it's like being burned, right? Um, that it feels that horrible. Yeah. So what do you think yeah, about that? Lewis, well, one of the reasons it's interesting how for many people you have to shift to metaphor and figurative language, you know what I mean? Literal description sort of fail you, but it's interesting that, that C.S. Lewis talked about a almost like a subdivision with homes, but, but the people have so chosen bitterness and isolation and loneliness that they keep building homes farther away from each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a subdivision. It's like a neighborhood, but the homes are just farther and farther and farther and farther away from each other, which to me is a very haunting yet surprisingly accurate picture of what it would be like if you just kept choosing to reject love 
to reject wholeness, to reject health, to reject the, con- the connections we have with each other. It's like you would just keep living farther and farther and farther away from everything. So you technically could be in hell, in a hell of that sort then after death. There could be a place then after death that is without God that is like that. Well, I would, if we're going to speculate, it seems like you would have that option. Right. We, and, and that's what we can do here. <laughs> the idea that you would die and all of a sudden, in a split second, suddenly become a warm, generous, kind person of integrity and character in the flip of a switch. Um, Generally, becoming a certain kind of person in the world takes a while of growth and maturity and intentional steps in an intentional direction. So it makes sense to me on this side of death that you wouldn't just die and suddenly become some person who enjoys compassion and generosity when a second earlier you despise those things. You know what I mean? Right. Like human growth and development takes a while. And so the idea that people would die and step into whatever that realm is, clutching their selfishness and greed and bitterness that makes sense. Now, now, maybe something happens in which the light, the grace, the truth is so convicting that you sort of drop all that, almost like you're clutching some luggage that you suddenly drop because it seems completely ridiculous. But as long as we're speculating, I totally understand why people would say, yeah, on the other side, there's got to be room for bitterness and anger because it's not like you would just overnight change into a totally different person. Well, and then you have sort of those who would say, oh, well, you know, on Earth, you're refined, and when you die, wherever you are is where you're going to end up. And I think that's what drives the whole heaven and hell discussion, right? That, you know, no one's, right. no one's ever perfect, right. but there isn't, you know, it, it's, and I think it's, yeah. an, it's interesting, right? Because there's all, I mean, Catholics, I believe, and I'm not an expert in Catholic theology, but also have, you know, the notion of the, it doesn't just end when you die, that you are able to then have the have refining moments after right or there's a purgatory or there's yeah. some sort of um you know i just think all this is interesting and you're right we are you can go back and forth on this all day i think the interpretations of the bible is where people you know get sort of hung up and there are obviously different you have a different interpretation than you know somebody else might you know when the bible talks about the, the you know the a narrow a narrow gate for instance it's a narrow path how do you what how do you view that well when Jesus talked about a narrow gate, this is first century uh, Jewish life, and they had been conquered by a global military superpower, the Romans. And there was a large contingent. This is one more superpower that had conquered them. Earlier than the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. This was another one in the long line of people who had conquered them and were an occupying military force. And there were a large number of Jesus contemporaries who said, the only proper response to this humiliation is to pick up swords and go to war against Rome, armed revolt. And Jesus, and there's tremendous political pressure, religious pressure, socioeconomic pressure on where is the next leader going to come who's going to show us how to organize, pick up our swords, and drive Rome out with the strength of God. And so when Jesus comes along, he's saying, if you pick up swords and you do armed revolt, Rome will crush you, which, by the way, actually happened. And so there's all this massive pressure. No wonder large crowds come to hear him teach. They want to know, are you the leader we've been waiting for who's going to finally kick the mask? 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you talk about narrow is the gate, he's inviting people into, I know that this isn't popular, but I want you to consider becoming a new kind of nonviolent force in the world who lets your light shine without having to pick up swords and kill people. And I think what you cannot divorce narrow is the way from what did that mean was he talking in a very heated political, socioeconomic setting? Was he speculating about what happens when you die in 3,000 years or whatever? Or was he talking to them about the very practical, real temptations that were all around them to be the kind of force in the world that he's arguing doesn't actually make the world better? It just increases the violence while he is coming to show them a nonviolent way to actually be so when people take those passages and sort of extract them out of their very real first century context and then make them about something else, maybe at some level that's what they mean. But I think he was, I think you can avoid the very real implications and consequences of what he's teaching by just making it about some, you know, ambiguous afterlife. Yeah, and this, and I think this, well... No, that was. I mean, it's a great, it's a great answer, and I think, I think, you know, when it comes to the Bible, one of the important things, and obviously, I mean, you've got a deep education in this, and and you were a pastor for years, and you've looked at this deeply, is sort of understanding context. And again, there's going to be those debates over what the context of different parts of the Bible actually is, but but trying to understand that is sort of the key to really getting what's being what's being said now. I don't know what has changed if if somebody walks up and says that you know the Bible is the is the word of God God spoke through people it is the absolute authority it is God's word what are your views on that now and have they changed at all since your pastoring days The Bible was written by people it was written by real people in real places at real times and it reflects evolving human consciousness So the people who wrote the Bible were writing from a particular period of time they had opinions, they had biases, they had views, they had agendas, they had lots and lots of material they could pull from, but they selectively gathered together certain stories, certain images, certain metaphors, because they wanted the readers to see particular things. So whatever, and I believe it's, it's extremely inspired, I've had extraordinary inspired transcendent moments studying and reading the Bible. I was going to say, do you think God wrote through them? I was going to say, do you think God wrote through them in that process? You know, do you think that it was, you know... People, were people inspired? One image the scripture writers use of being picked up and carried along. Yeah, awesome. But whatever divine spirit experiences people have through this book, it's first and foremost a human book, and those experiences came through the very real humanity of it. So the writer of the Gospel of John says there were lots of other things that Jesus did, and if I were to record them all, I would need way, way, way too much pen and paper and books. So basically the writer says, I only told you a few of the things, because I have a very specific agenda I'm trying to write to you about. The Apostle Paul says, now, I'm speaking this part to you in one of his letters, he says, this isn't a word from God, this is actually just me talking to you. (laughs) So in the Word of God, you have writers say, this is not the Word of God, this is just me talking to you. Right. So I begin with, this is real people in real places at real time, having experiences of loss, love, lust, betrayal, exile, oppression, depression, 
excruciating pain and agony, untold euphoria and joy, and they are giving language to these experiences, trying to make sense of the life out of the life of their tribe, out of the life of their people, what it means to human being and the cosmos, and that's where the power of it comes from. So you, and I believe if you actually enter into the blood and guts and confusion and all of the actual crackling humanity and the flesh and blood suffering and questions that are in there, I believe you will find the divine, but when you find it, you'll find it honestly. You'll be like, now the reason why this book resonates with me is because I know what this person is talking about. I've experienced that, and this is really helpful. As opposed to this sort of book that exists in a hermeneutically sealed box that sort of dropped out of the sky that apparently God wrote, and people were like, oh, ooh, my hand, look at it, it's moving mysteriously. You know what I mean? It, do you... Writers are very straightforward about this. Do you think, and I think, because this is what you're saying is very interesting too, and I think it, you know, do you think that God selected through people, inspired through people what those agendas should be? Or do you think that there were times that people, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Paul there, that people chose their own agendas and maybe weren't inspired in those moments by God? Well, how in the world would you ever know? <laughs> yeah, well, we have, we, some sort of drawing a line. What's really fascinating is that for thousands of years, People have had a sense that there is more to life than serious than just the material realm. That there is something moving through the human story, moving through all creation, pulling it forward. So you even have growth and development within the scripture itself. Certain things at one point that are considered normal later, they're like, we've left that behind. We've moved on. So progress, as the great D. Chardin wrote, progress is the soul of the universe. And the Bible is actually a library of very progressive books because what happens is there, you just keep having movement. The story of the flood, all there were flood stories. There's nothing unusual about a flood story. But in the flood stories, the gods, everybody, everything ended vanquished. In this flood story in the Bible, it ends with this God saying, I'm not going to do that again. So the point isn't the flood. The point is this story starts like the other flood stories that people told at the time, and yet it ends with a radically new vision of a new kind of God who says, I don't do that anymore. So even within that primitive barbaric story, there is this subtle movement and an expanding of consciousness. And it's there in story after story after story. No matter how primitive they are and barbaric and no matter how many people die, there's always a slight movement forward. So the Bible records a trajectory of forward movement, and that's what makes it so progressive. Do you think it's problematic, and you mentioned the flood, do you think it's problematic for people to take everything literally, take a lot of the stories literally? Is the flood something that you, I know, yeah. I mean, not everything, but do you think the flood, for instance, is something that people could believe in, or do you think it's more of a story that is just... This is from the ancient, what is it, Sumer, the Mesopotamian area, and this was a flat area that had flash floods. So imagine, you have no Google images. You know what I mean? You have no... I actually can't imagine you that. No <laughs> you, you've probably never been more than, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 miles from your home. And every once in a while, water comes raging down through your village and wipes everything away. Thousands of years ago, how would you not begin to speculate on this horrific water 
that came your way, and that this must be the judgment of somebody somewhere. So were there floods in the region where these stories were told? Yes. Would you, if you had no concept of how big the world is, talk about a flood that was as big as the world? Yes, because the flood was as big as your world. You know what I mean? Everything you know got wiped away with this water. So when modern people thousands of years later say, look how stupid those people were, no, they weren't stupid. They were writing from their perspective about what they were experiencing. And you can see quite quickly how people began to anthropomorphize, how they began to attribute to forces human characteristics. Only where a flood just came through and wiped out all our crops and our livestock and some of our beloved friends died. There must be somebody somewhere who's angry with us. So these stories came about because real people were trying to make sense of suffering, tragedy, joy, fertility, abundance, loss. And the question is, what were they seeing? And over time, what they began to imagine was that the universe isn't ultimately against us, but there is something called love, which overcomes all sorts of things. And now you get some very interesting stories. So taking it literally, you're missing the power of these stories. And most people are completely misreading the Bible. They're taking these stories and going, what a primitive, barbaric God. No, this is a progressive story about how people were waking up in an earlier primitive barbaric time to more heightened, advanced, more sophisticated images of just what it means to be a human and what it means that there may be forces that work in the world bigger than us. Now, I'm only going to ask you one or two more questions because you have been great and I've eaten up a ton of your time. And you're definitely going to have to come back on the show. You're going to have to come back again for sure. How much fun is this stuff to talk about? It is. No, I think I think it's fascinating. And, you know, look, I know a lot of people – personally, I don't agree with everything you've said. And that's fine. We don't have to agree. I think a lot of people – you know, really, with especially with with Love Wins and all that, got very upset, and there were and there were sort of the there was sort of this shouting match back and forth, or people shouting at you rather. And and you can have discussions about this and and talk about it and say, you know what, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can have the conversation, which I think is interesting and important. And that brings me to one of my final questions, which is which is homosexuality, gay marriage. What was it that that sort of tipped you over the edge in coming out in support? Oh, I would have asked, answered these questions 10 years ago the same way. I, uh, I'm a pastor, so these aren't topics. These are people. These aren't abstract notions. These are actual friends. And as a pastor, you don't get the luxury of standing at a distance and speculating. You actually walk with people. And it is healthy, normal, and natural to want to spend your life with someone to want to have a partner. Loneliness is one of the deepest aches in the human bones. Leonardo as a pastor, the idea of saying to somebody, you have to be alone your life because of who you are, um, that isn't something that we should be doing. So I didn't make a grand announcement. I just answered the question as I've answered it for a long time. And at some point, somebody put it on the internet and said that I've made an announcement. <laughs> the, inter- <laughs> the interweb decides these things for us. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there needs to be, I, I am for love and fidelity and commitment and sacrifice and devotion and people having somebody to partner with, to witness to their life and to journey down the path of life with. I think it's good for the world. Do you feel like uh, conservative Christians misread 
the Bible on the issue? Because they see the Bible as, as precluding it. Would you say you see the Bible as supporting it? Were the biblical writers talking about two people who love each other, committed to each other, walking through life together? Did the biblical writers even have that category? We know they have the category of temple prostitution. We they have the category of excessive promiscuity. But did and we know they have the category of older men having sex with younger boys. So we know that we had those categories. But they aren't talking about what we're talking about. So to say to use the Bible somehow were the biblical writers talking about what we're talking about? The answer is no. They were talking about something different. So it's just not even helpful. And then, what are the 31,000 verses in the Bible? And people quote, what are they, five verses that if you actually read them, if you actually look at the Greek words, if you actually look at the context, to say to somebody, you can't participate in our church, you can't be a leader, you are going to hell, you are whatever, because of them simply being true to who they are, based on your sketchy interpretation of several verses, is to me a great injustice. Well, listen, we have, co- I feel like we've covered, I-, I think you're solving the world, we're solving the world's problems here. We've covered almost every issue. Listen, you have to promise you'll come back because I want to have another, you know, 45 minute conversation at some point about more of these issues. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll make sure we link out to your okay. tour and I uh, appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you. All right. Thanks. My pleasure. We'll talk again. Bye. I can't Oh, thank you, Larry. So we're about we're about out of here, but we wanted we wanted to bring up one more story uh, that uh, that Billy put up this week. And it's about a a, a a nice little sign that um, as you enter a little town in, in Texas um, that welcomes you to town. Uh, but apparently, there's a problem with it. Billy, let the people know what the problem is with this sign. Chaos has broken out in Hawkins, Texas, where, dun, a sign dun, dun. <laughs> where a sign has five evil words on it. It evil. says, Jesus welcomes you to Hawkins. <laughs> now, naturally, this giant, and it's actually not a very pretty sign. It's like purple and yellow. <laughs> but this, <laughs> this giant sign that has been like foisted upon three um, brick columns, I guess is how you would how you would describe this. I'm not um, laughing is at the on sign. public land, allegedly. There's apparently a debate which I love because I love small towns. I grew up in a small town. I right. love the debate is over whether or not the land is public or private. Nobody seems to know. Um, and at least that's that was the last time I looked at the story. That's what, they, what people were saying about it. But th- so this land. It, it's it could be owned by the town or it might be owned by the mayor of the town who coincidentally also owns a coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. So anyway, this what, sign what is the coffee? Been, what does the coffee shop have to do with it? Uh, nothing other okay. than I love that the mayor of the town. It's such a small town. That the mayor owns the local diner um, and coffee shop. But the the bottom line with with this with this case is that the P, the Freedom from Religion Foundation out in Wisconsin is apparently so enraged by the fact that this sign is on public land in Texas that they, they the, right free, in Texas the people in Wisconsin are worried about what's going on in Texas okay that's fine so they finally um, and I say finally because it usually takes them like two seconds 
to realize that something like this is going on. This sign's been up since 2011. They finally fired off a letter, um, and they're they're demanding that the sign be removed, brought to private property, taken off of public property. But you've got a lot of officials who are defending it, who are defending the sign, coming together and saying, hey, no, 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 we love our Jesus sign, and you're not taking it down. Now, I know how this story usually ends. The story usually ends with a town buckling under the pressure and right. not wanting to go to court over right. it. So that's probably what's going to happen. But it's look, it's an interesting debate. What well, do you think? Chris well, Mill? I think that I don't. I mean, I really don't have a problem with it. I would uh, listen if you're up in Ann Arbor or wherever, you're going to maybe get a Muhammad welcomes you to town sign. That's that's possible. But I think that uh, is it a religious sign? I'm sure that the people who put it up there believe that it was a religious sign. I would guess yes. But if they had up a sign that said, like the example I gave to you, George Washington welcomes you to, what's the name of the town? Hawkins. George Walk Washington welcomes you to Hawkins, or Governor Perry welcomes you to Hawkins, or Sam Houston welcomes you to Hawkins. Can they can they just make the same argument with Jesus that it's a historical figure and doesn't it isn't promoting a religion? It's simply a historical figure. Well, Chris, that's a good question. Have you been possessed by Mayor Will Rogers, owner of the coffee shop in Hawkins, because he? said the same thing. Oh, he did he really? Said, <laughs> I guess I should read your story. He actually said, to me and many others, Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is in every religion across the globe. He's in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. He represents love and kindness. But the interesting thing is that was an interview, I think, last month. The interesting thing is in a more recent interview, he also said, quote, the Constitution is very clear about freedom from religion, not freedom, freedom of religion, not freedom from it. Uh, and then he said, I think we have to stand up for the foundation of our country. I mean, we're built on God and Jesus. I'm sorry if people don't like it, but that's true. So I understand. I, I get it. I think, you know, look. If the sign said Muhammad welcomes you here or Chris Field welcomes you here or some demonic force, and I'm including Chris Field in that, welcomes you Along here. Along with Muhammad, huh? Okay, that's fine. Well, no, I said only Chris Field. I <laughs> okay. didn't go with, with Muhammad. Um, then, you know, I, I look, I think there's an argument to be made why I'm public pri property, but there's also an argument to be made, well, you know, why not allow free speech on public property if the vast majority of the public wants it there? So it get it gets dicey. I think when we yeah. I think it's a little clearer cut when it comes to like nativity scenes and things like that than yeah. it is when it comes to a permanent welcome sign. Yeah, I, I think that. Well, you know, whatever. I can I talk about the worst people, part about this story? Can just leave people alone. If a town wants to have a sign, let them have a sign. But whatever. But can we talk about the fact that they then they produced purple and yellow shirts that look like the sign? So we're we're subjected to the color of the sign on T-shirts too. This is the mayor allowed? Now the mayor's an elected official. Is the mayor allowed to wear the the shirt? I didn't see the mayor wearing the shirt, which is okay. interesting. I saw some other residents wearing it. Um, yeah, look, I think. The, there's an, uh, there's also the interesting prospect of can land like this be rented out? I mean, right, right. can it be rented out to a church if it's public land and the church pays for it and there's no taxpayer dollars and the and the town's actually making money off right, of it? I think those right. are all interesting prospects. I I and and I know, are. you know, we've seen atheists getting angry okay, about that one other, too. One other thing I need to get into before we go, and that's simply, folks, if you haven't listened to Billy's Ebola interview that he did earlier this week, or last week, or whenever you're listening to this, please go listen to it because his feelings are hurt. Though we don't have as many lessons on that story, I'm out. Uh, he's uh, he's he's actually been crying about it. So uh, I shouldn't say crying. He's been whining about it, and we're all getting nauseous because it's just infuriating listening to him. 
So if you would do us all a solid and go click on his story and listen to our podcast with the Ebola doctor and how they, you know, their lives were saved and God did something amazing or yada, yada, yada to quote Elaine, um, go do that just to get Billy off our backs because it's just really excruciating listening to him. Uh, Billy, we should probably get out of here because I got to go play in the sand apparently because my family just returned from wherever they were out shopping and spending my money. Um, any words of wisdom for the peeps? Put on your burkas and crosses. <laughs> Read the blaze and say bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Such a dope. <laughs> Church Boys.